The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Um, this is usually where I'm prompted by Matt to say that we are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Matt's not here, and that's okay. We did just fine without him. Um, I am. <laughs> well, you are not missing, Matt. <laughs> yeah, no. I actually <laughs> we I missed Stuart, though. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, now I feel bad. <laughs> yeah. Now, no. <laughs> but as you can hear, I am judged by the I'm judged, judged. Joined, judged and joined <laughs> by the Emily capable uh, Dr. Shreya Trevetti and Drs. Molly Hoibline. I was doing great. Oh, you almost got it. Molly Hoibline. Hi, guys. How are you? Hi. Um, I, I am fantastic. I am uh, just overjoyed about this episode. Um, but more so, I just need to tell the listeners uh, what happened for this recording to to actually take place at ACP. Um, no, uh, Dr. Uh, Noelle Barry Mers, who uh, you'll be hearing in a second, um, just finished her heart disease for women talk at ACP. And she was flooded with so many questions and people coming up to her um, that basically I uh, I was her bodyguard and had to escort her and say, no more questions. Sorry, she has to go to a recording and get to her flight. Um, if you guys watch, do you guys watch The Daily Show, Trevor Noah? Once in a while. Okay. This week, there's this hilarious beh- uh, like uh, behind the scenes or in between the scenes clip of him where he talks about being at a basketball game with Jay-Z. And Jay-Z was like infiltrated with all these people like, Jay-Z, Jay-Z, Jay-Z. And Trevor Noah comes up to him and he's like, oh, hey, Trevor. And then he's like, I got to get out of here. My bodyguards aren't here. And Trevor Noah escorts him out of this like flood. And I just felt like I was Trevor Noah right now for... For Noel, and so I, and Noel was Jay Z. Yeah, yeah, basically, <laughs> I like I. That's literally that what right. happened. Um, and so I just she's she's a big deal, and I'm I'm so excited. We I, was, I guess I was a little worried. I was like, oh man, there's there's too many people, and <laughs> we we might not even get to this recording. <laughs> this it happened. Conference has been such a joy, um, and I've learned so much, and I've met so many really fascinating, fantastic people. But really, the high point for me was these series of panic texts from Shreya as we ran <laughs> past our deadline. Um, Maybe they'll make it to Twitter. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. Look out for Paul's tweets on that. Um, but yeah, I'm a, a bodyguard if anyone needs um, help from paparazzi. Sure. Um, so wait, maybe Molly, you want to you want to talk about what what the listeners are going to get to hear? What's exciting about today's episode? Yeah. So on this episode, we got to talk with uh, Noelle Barry Mertz um, about her research around ischemic heart disease in women, and she helped us really understand how the disease presents differently in women, how women have different symptoms, um, and how our kind of model of obstructive coronary disease that fits most male patients doesn't fit well with female patients. And um, I think this will be really helpful for our listeners to make sure that we're not missing ischemic heart disease in women and also make sure that we're treating them appropriately because there has been a gap in treatments between the genders. Filling all the gaps and knowledge holes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, very nice. Well, maybe we'll cut that out. I didn't like that either. No. It sounded good in my head. 
<laughs> Paul, why don't you tell us about uh, the brilliant uh, Noelle Barry-Mertz? Sure. So Dr. Noelle Barry-Mertz is the director of the Women's Health Center at Cedars-Sinai Heart Institute, where she is a professor of medicine. She is a pioneer in the study of women's heart health and preventive cardiology. Dr. Mertz was a principal investigator in the NHLBI-sponsored Women's Ischemia Syndrome Evaluation, or WISE, initiative. And that's an ongoing study. It's been ongoing for a while that has provided new insights in understanding heart disease in women. Dr. Mertz is a strong advocate for correcting gender inequality in research and for educating women on how to recognize heart disease symptoms. And so it is our pleasure to bring to you our fantastic interview with the great Dr. Mertz. So let's get started. Um, we're, we're okay with calling you Noelle? Noelle. Okay. Um, I feel a little intimidated in calling you Noelle. No. Uh, this is a little bit of a backstory, but... I- I am a little starstruck because five years ago, I remember watching your TED Talk with Barbara Streisand. Mm. And then in researching for this episode, when I Googled you, I was like, oh, this is her. Mm-hmm. And so I um, am so excited about this episode. So maybe for those that don't know you or maybe a little bit of background, what would you maybe even say is like your one-liner for... Who am I? Yeah. I'm a clinical investigative cardiologist, um, so I do see patients uh, all the time. I find that we don't do relevant research unless you're addressing questions that uh, at the bedside are important. Yeah, important. Well, given that you've had such a successful career, uh, what factors do you feel like really contribute to, to your success? Uh, I think this is true pretty much for anything. It's the patience and the persistence. Uh, really pays off. And I think that's true in clinical care. We still are paid to be a little OCD about uh, what's going on with the patient and being attentive uh, to their needs, being good listeners and diagnosticians. For uh, research, for clinical research, it's also that curiosity that um, you've seen something a million times, you don't really know how to treat it. Um, Well, instead of moving on to the next patient, I say, hmm, I wonder what kind of experiment could we set up or what kind of registry or clinical trial could we do that would help us understand that, would collect some evidence that would help us do a better job um, with that knowledge gap which is sitting in front of me. So um, that's really what has been the drive to do the research. The um, final thing I would say is as an investigator, uh, go and do something other people are not doing uh, because that's often where the greatest needs are, and you will be innovative. Um, hopefully, it's something significant, right? You're not studying fruit flies, um, or if it is, then it's something relevant to human health. So um, do something that other people are not doing. Yeah. Thank you for being curious and asking those questions. Mm-hmm. So let's delve into some of these questions a little bit more. Um, Paul, Molly, you want to start off? start us off with a case? Sure, yeah. So we have uh, Miss Mina Ka. She's a 45-year-old woman who's coming to see you in clinic after hospitalization for acute shortness of breath and chest tightness. Her EKG showed ST segment elevations and had an elevated troponin to 0.48. Her CT scan showed no evidence of pulmonary emboli. A CTA showed no obstructive coronary artery disease. The patient was discharged from the hospital without a specific diagnosis and was discharged on the same medications, aspirin, pentoprazole, Ativan, Pravacol, 40 milligrams, and amlodipine, 5 milligrams. Could you give us a historical context of how we have slowly come to understand that heart disease is different in women? This case exemplifies uh, simple thinking 
uh, that has become fairly prominent in cardiology and has distributed now into ED as well as hospitalists and internal medicine, which is if the uh, coronary arteries, the large ones, the epicardial ones that we easily can see, um, are not obstructed, uh, then there's nothing wrong with you. And this is, um, I think, a, a natural offshoot of our uh, focus on interventional cardiology. Uh, and research of, you know, the last 40 years in men for men and by men. So our, our stress echoes, our stress specs are also looking for uh, wall motion abnormalities that would signify obstructive coronary disease or, uh, you know, transmural perfusion defects that, again, would be epicardial coronaries. Um, so uh, it's not right, but um, we have moved away from thinking about coronary physiology uh, before interventional cardiology, before uh, you know we got so good at diagnosing these male pattern problems. We used to think about coronary physiology. We used to think about coronary blood flow, and uh, we have to come back to that. Yeah. And one of my favorite things about your talk today was you were saying in cardiology, seeing is believing. And so if seeing has always been in the cath with those big coronaries, but women might be a little different, um, you know, we're, we might be doing our, our female patients some disservice there. Um, so can you walk us through kind of um, how our understanding of women's heart disease has changed and what are some of the proposed mechanisms of, of um you know, what we're, we're seeing now more and more, which is, uh, you know, colloquially, it's called Minoka, right? MIs Correct. with non-obstructive non coronary arteries. Correct. If I'm saying, mm -hmm. <laughs> I know the acronym more than the actual name. No, but it's good that you know the acronym and we're trying to get people to, you know, pay attention and you are. So thank you. <laughs> um, so w can you speak to a little bit more in terms of... Um, uh, how we've come to understand that and then um, why, yeah, what, why is it that women um, might be kind of having different types of heart disease? So when we started in with our uh, National Heart, Lung, and Blood-sponsored uh, Women's Ischemia Syndrome Evaluation, fondly called the WISE, uh, and we're in our 23rd year, we did a big... Um, you know, registry review, uh, a literature review, um, but we summarized and published in JAMA uh, that um, women, uh, more so than men, can have acute coronary syndromes, non-ST segment elevation MIs, or even ST segment elevation MIs with no obstructive coronary disease, um, anywhere to uh, up to 30 to 40 percent. Uh, men, uh, it's more like 5 to 10%. So where we would have said, oh, this is uncommon in men, uh, and again, a knowledge gap, move on, right? <laughs> mm, okay, yeah. next patient. Uh. Uh, to think that one out of three uh, heart attacks or acute coronary syndromes in women was not accompanied by obstructive coronary disease, this really calls out a huge knowledge gap that not only is associated with lack of treatment, uh, but studies were coming out in the late 80s and then well through the 1990s that uh, we were having an epidemic of death in women. Uh, more women at that time were dying than men. So this lack of recognition, which resulted in a lack of treatment, was resulting in untoward outcomes and a, a health disparity for women. 
Yeah. And thanks to your research after years, we're being able to do good work and understand it more. I like when you're like, yeah, if this was prostate cancer, erectile dysfunction, we would have moved (laughs) the needle much sooner. Yes. Yes. Um, And might I ask, so do we know it's, I mean, obviously critically important that we know that it's happening, but pathophysiologically, why, why is there um, a sex difference? We don't know exactly why there's a sex difference. There's a lot of hypotheses. Uh, One hypothesis is that women and men lay down atherosclerotic plaque differently, similar in some ways, just to kind of put forward the concept, how do women and men become obese? Um, Men have very focal visceral fat, Um, women get cellulite all over. Uh, and so we we did IVA studies with the Cleveland Clinic for male, uh, we did propensity matching of angiograms and demonstrated that men were much more likely to have what we call lumpy bumpy disease. They have more negative remodeling in response to a plaque followed by positive remodeling. So you see the obstructed coronary disease sooner. Women do this more concentric remodeling. They lay the plaque out very smoothly uh, and it's some times or often just invisible to the angiogram. Now, why do women and men deposit fat differently? Well, we know a little bit about that. It, it, it does have to do with reproductive hormones. And um, you'll see the PCOS women that have the relatively higher testosterone levels, they have more visceral fat, mm. right? These are our busty women. And uh, th- this, is, this is well known. So, so reproductive hormones may participate in some of this. Women also have a much higher likelihood of what we call vascular dysfunction, if you look. Women are the migraineurs more often. Women are the Raynaud's more often. Now, why is that? Well, again, if you think, these are hypotheses, if you think teleologically, when you were that cave woman uh, staying in the cave because you had this horrible belly pain, and then all of a sudden this little baby pops out, and that placenta is delivered, if you don't clamp down pretty quickly, you're going to bleed to death. So there are teleologic reasons, and there is some basic science to suggest that women are at that higher end of vasoconstrictive arterial responses. We could go on and on and on. Um, Please. (laughs) It's really interesting. I could do this for the next three hours. But but men and women often in different areas of health and disease are substantially different, 10% different, 20% different. Well, 20% different of cardiovascular disease is a really large number. So, and it it is fun. That's fascinating. Thank you for that. So getting back then to uh, practical, when we're seeing... A patient in front of us. And you're saying also 10% of men also have this yes. non-male pattern obstructive mm-hmm. um, as well. So, so it's, a, it's a woman's problem and a percentage of men problem as well. What, at least for women, when, when this patient's in front of us, what are some best practices in recognizing ischemic heart disease in women? Um, I know we, we kind of just like, oh, women present atypically, but is there something else we can hang our hats on or mm-hmm. um, when us as PCPs or hospitalists see see this patient in the ED or um, mm-hmm. in the wards? So number one is to be knowledgeable about the updated uh, contemporary registries that clearly demonstrate that typical angina 
atypical angina and non-anginal chest pain uh, no longer differentiate women or men with Mm. regard to their ischemic heart disease risk. So when you are faced with a patient that has chest pain, and that's pretty much anything above the umbilicus, that is unusual for them. I mean, if they go out and eat three hot dogs at a ball game and they get GERD and you've treated them for it, I I don't want to hear about that. (laughs) But but so these are relatively new symptoms that, um, you know, could be ischemic heart disease. So they need to be tested. And then the guidelines are correct. There's good evidence to support this. If they can walk and they have a normal 12-lead ECG, they can do a routine exercise stress test in your lab, in the cardiologist's office, uh, and you will watch uh, their functional capacity. Uh, men and women that cannot get out of two stages of a bruise protocol, which is six minutes, uh, they are at risk. That is that is not normal. You will assess their clinical response. Uh, do they get the angina? Does it replicate the symptoms? Do they get short of breath? That is their anginal equivalent. Number three, do they have ST segment changes? Uh, and then number four, if you ordered imaging for a variety of reasons, uh, is there an abnormal imaging response? All four of these are equally weighted. So we need to have our eyes open. From a Bayesian likelihood of ischemic heart disease, each one of these weighs the same. If you have one, of four, one out of four abnormal, it's an abnormal test. If you have two, it's even more abnormal. This is where your Duke treadmill score will come in and you'll calculate higher and higher levels of risk of ischemic heart disease, death, and MI. So open your eyes to looking at stress tests. It's not all about the imaging, uh, which is the way that cardiologists often will, um, imaging is normal, get out of here, look carefully, and then um, make a determination about level of risk and decide if you need to go on to angiography or if optimal medical therapy is sufficient. Even backing up before even the, the testing in terms of the symptoms, are there any symptoms that are more likely in women? I don't even know if that's describing. You can just say mm-hmm. no. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it's hard to know. You would have to go to large population studies, um, you know, the Rose questionnaire, the, uh, you know, Framingham had low rates of, of angina. It's always hard to know. Um, there was a good Australian study uh, that uh, surveyed primary Uh, care practices a number of years ago, and actually demonstrated in their senior population over the age of 65, fairly high prevalence of angina, if you asked. Um, So then you sort of say, well, like, why aren't we asking? And it's Uh. probably like, because why we don't ask for, we don't ask about erectile dysfunction, right? It's another whole discussion. (laughs) Right, because I want to talk about. You know, take another 20 minutes and you don't have time. Um, So... Uh, but within that, once people are referred better data sets that we have that would try to characterize angina as typical angina, atypical, which is non-exertional, non-anginal chest pain, which means it's not substernal or radiating uh, into the arm, uh, those are the atypical and the non-anginal are more prevalent in women. And again, old studies that were dependent on coronary angiograms suggested that they were not associated with a, a coronary artery disease. But now that we realize that you can have ischemia without obstructive coronaries, and these newer studies, registry studies of patients referred for symptoms, 
uh, it doesn't discriminate, even mm-hmm. though it is more prevalent in women. Women will tell you about pain at rest. Women will tell you about pain at rest, particularly when they're under stress, um, a rumination kind of thing. And in the old days, they would be told they were anxious or depressed. Yeah. Um, but uh, And we haven't fully linked these symptoms to the ischemia, but we have done randomized controlled trials that have demonstrated with Seattle Angina questionnaires, which is a pretty valid way. Once a patient is symptomatic, it's a pretty valid way of uh, measuring how extensive and severe their angina is. Um, when we improve their uh, ischemia by a, a stress test, by a flow reserve, uh, their, an- their Seattle Angina questionnaire gets better. Hmm. I was just, you know, sort of thinking about my patients in practice. So many of them complain of chest pain symptoms, yeah. and it's it's very difficult. When, you know, what kind of patients do you feel like need to go on to stress testing? It's not realistic that we stress all of them. So how how do you stratify it's, that? It's not realistic to stress to stress all women or even all men. But um, certainly, uh, the guidelines endorse that you would uh, stress test uh, any woman over the age of fifty, any man over the age of forty. That there was um, a, a clinician uh, concern uh, that the symptoms could be due to ischemic heart disease. Uh, and you know, you're going to use your best judgment about this if. Uh, Again, they this is a new patient, and they tell you they had three hot dogs last night, and now they have uh, what sounds like GERD to you. I think you're legitimate in probably trying GERD therapy first. So you're still going to use your uh, clinical acumen. But if you stress test 40-year-old uh, men, men and 50-year-old women, they are at an intermediate likelihood of having ischemic heart disease, anywhere from 30 to 50% likelihood. And this is a potentially lethal disease. Um, uh, still, uh, up to half of our deaths that we experience in cardiovascular disease uh, are sudden and unexpected. So um, it's not okay to ignore them or brush it off or say, this is atypical, uh, I don't think you need a stress test. And routine stress testing, again, if they're able to exercise and they have a normal exercise, ECG, uh, normal ECG at baseline, that's a reasonably affordable test. Um, the alternative that you can also use uh, for patients that don't have a normal ECG or they cannot walk is a CT angiogram. This is guidelines. And that is also reasonably affordable compared to an untoward death. Does that answer your question? That does. Yeah, thank you. That's helpful. I guess, you know, let's elaborate one step further. <clears throat> what about a 26-year-old who's not does not smoke, doesn't have a family history, um, is visibly anxious uh, in the middle of uh, finals week? Um, sure. Uh, you know, we use our best judgment about this all the time. But on the other hand, a 32-year-old lifelong diabetic um, with a family history of premature coronary disease in a, in a first-degree relative, put that woman on a treadmill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really about the risk factors and using your pretest probability and mm-hmm. then and then matching it up with the test and mm-hmm. going there. Um, we spoke a little bit about the disparity in recognizing heart disease in women. I was struck from your talk also about the disparity in the treatment uh, or even screening sometimes. And so I would love if you can open that can of worms and we can bring that on the forefront as well. Yeah, again, uh, these are large studies and and this is quite well validated because you can see in large um, population studies 
that uh, like the Virgo study evaluated women and men who had both had uh, a heart attack, a premature heart attack at an early age. And it was very clear that the women, uh, despite being diabetic, despite uh, cigarette smoking or a strong family history, were much less likely to have had their hypertension treated, much less likely to have their dyslipidemia treated, uh, even in the setting of diabetes, which is, you know, guidelines therapy. So there are health disparities in prescribing. These are also documented in large insurance claim uh, data, again. Uh, for younger women, you can imagine that the uh, physician is saying to themselves, here's a young reproductive age woman. Um, she's 36, and I'm not sure if she's finished her childbearing, and I don't think she should be on these drugs. Um, the, the new aspect, and this is a little bit of a Me Too movement, is what? You don't trust us to control our contraception, and can't we have a shared decision about this? I saw my father die, clutch his chest and die. I don't want that to happen to me. My LDL is 180. Give me the drug doc. Mm. Um, So I think we need to do a better job of not going forward with this implicit bias, um, which deserves women. One of my, I, I have a, a ton of direct quotes from your talk actually written down, um, but mm-hmm. one of the ones I really liked was guidelines make good doctors, great doctors. I wonder if you wouldn't mind speaking to the use of guidelines and actually addressing um, those disparities. So there's data to support that statement that guidelines not only make good doctors, great doctors, but they make good health systems great health systems. And the more that we use our appropriate use criteria, but we also um, are reminded um, this patient is statin eligible. This patient, um, you know, would, uh, should be, um, you know, on better antihypertensives. So we'll look to the electronic health record to help us with that. Uh, But there's good data to demonstrate that as we've gone forward in our cardiovascular societies, our American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association, have worked really hard, um, get with the guidelines as well as other uh, issues, not only for our practitioners, but for health systems to work to embed reminders, standing order sets. Uh, doctor, you prescribe, you know, you said this is an ICD 910 code of ACS. Please prescribe low dose aspirin beta blocker, ACE, ARB, and high-intensity statin. Um, There are, therefore, data, uh, which we reviewed, that demonstrated that following this ACS guideline implementation, preferentially women's lives were saved. Uh, And the male mortality curve did not shift it was better than the women's to start with, and, and, and it didn't get better because the men were already getting guidelines therapy. Hmm. So we think guidelines uh, can play an important role, and particularly health systems in the electronic health record, until it becomes just reflex uh, and we're able to overcome these implicit biases, uh, we, we need to work hard to close these gaps. 
Yeah. Let's get back to our patient, Miss Minna, mm-hmm. Minna Ka. Mm-hmm. Do you, did you guys get her name, by the way? Mm-hmm. No. No. Minoka. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the aha moment. Matt, can you add like an aha? Oh, like, oh. there we go. <laughs> okay, good. Some good sound effects. That's clever. <laughs> I, was, I was like, Mino, but like that, maybe that's not a female right. name. Minoka. Right. Okay. So let's ah. go back to her. She, all right. So now that, you know, you're, you're telling us more about, um, you know, women having uh, microvascular dysfunction where maybe it's the capillaries or venules that are are the problems, not as much as those, those big arteries. We think the veins are okay. It's the arterioles, the no, little the little guys, just the pre-capillaries. That's yeah. what I meant. Okay. Anatomy. Good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Anatomically you know, correct. Yeah. So looking back at her, you know, she did have some ST... Changes. She sure did. Her trope was greater than the lab cutoff was, it was like ten times normal. Yeah, yeah, it was um, not normal. Um, and then, uh, but her her coronary CTI was negative. Mm-hmm. So, and then, so, and then she's discharged home on her same mm-hmm. meds. Mm-hmm. So now I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe this was maybe she did. If she's coming back to clinic and having persistent symptoms, maybe she did have an MI with non-obstructive coronary artery disease, maybe she does have more microvascular dysfunction. Um, what would you say is, you know, for us in clinic in front of her, what would you say is the best things we can do for management for her? Well, number one, I wouldn't say maybe she had a heart attack. She met World Health Organization criteria for an acute myocardial infarction. Oh, so she had, <laughs> Mic drop. she had symptoms of chest pain and shortness of breath. Bing. She had uh, abnormal ECG. Bing. Yeah. She had positive troponins. Bing. So um, she had a heart attack. Okay. Uh, and that was an error on that health system and those providers uh, to to discharge her without a diagnosis. Mm. Uh, now we see low risk ACS. They did keep her overnight. Um, I'm. I think it would be fine to discharge her, but she should have been discharged with follow up. We all know, and somebody would have done a stress test. We all know that patients don't do what they're told. Uh, so again, we can't we can't uh, overly blame the health system and or the physicians in that case. Um, you could, uh, at a minimum, do optimal medical therapy for acute myocardial infarction. That would be guidelines. Those guidelines are predicated on the idea that the vast majority of heart attacks are due to atherosclerotic coronary artery disease. Um, And what you don't know is she could have had a SCAD, spontaneous coronary artery dissection. They account for about 5% of MIs, particularly in younger women. Mm. Um, And those are treated differently. We so far don't think that they should be on a statin. Um, And often they are not left with persistent chest pain unless they have a big watershed area of uh, incomplete infarct, like a really big SCAD. Um, They also sometimes, even though they qualify as having an acute myocardial infarction, it's actually myocarditis. Hmm. Um, And a cardiac MRI uh, would pick that up. Um, uh, We have some patients that have autoimmune disorders and or a primary vasculopathy, uh, and they've embolized from a coronary uh, artery um, uh, aneurysm, maybe from childhood uh, uh, Kawasaki's. So there's additional things that should be done 
to sort of make sure that this person is an atherosclerotic mm-hmm. ischemic heart disease patient. Um, but that said, if at a minimum she was put on optimal medical therapy, you're just kind of covering your bets and you're going to be right 90 plus percent of the right. time, right? Right. She's yeah. like, yeah, say she's not having other symptoms to put you in like the myocarditis category or, um, or the other kind of a little bit more of the other diagnosis that could be in this differential. Mm-hmm. Um, if we take a look at her meds, right? Her meds, the she's- The statin. I mean, what are we, what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> she's, so she's on aspirin 81. Which she was self-prescribing, yeah. I believe you said. So right. nobody even told her to do that. And was like, okay. She's on a PPI. Uh, she's uh, taking Ativan. She's on Pravacol. What's the generic for Pravacol? Pravastatin. Pravastatin. Mm-hmm. I knew that. Mm-hmm. Um and amlodipine five milligrams. Yeah. What would you, um, given that there's these four magic pills, what would you kind of change her her regimen to? What would you advocate for? Yeah. No. This is a this is a really good question. And again, if um, she was now asymptomatic and you didn't have any further information and you were unable or unwilling to do. Uh, you know, diagnostics that would help you confirm that she had atherosclerotic ischemic heart disease, uh, you would conservative throw the kitchen sink at people because it saves lives. You would maintain her aspirin. You would intensify her statin because she's now secondary prevention. So you would put her on 20 or 40 of Resuva, 40 or 80 of Atorva. Um, I'm not uh, against the amlodipine. It would depend on her blood pressure. Um, but for secondary prevention, we also typically try to get people on an ACE or an ARB for their hypertension uh, or their infarct. It looked like her infarct was small, but you'd probably want to do an echo and make sure. And you would you would see if you couldn't add an ACE or an ARB. Yeah. If she was having persistent symptoms, you would add a beta blocker for angina management. So to back up, if if we did, before we did that, to decide to get a stress test, how would mm-hmm. that change management? If it was negative, but we know that she did have an MI, does that change your choice of drugs? Again, if they do not have persistent symptoms and they have a relatively normal stress test, uh, I will look for those other issues because you would treat them differently. So we will order a cardiac MRI and we'll do a combination. Uh, you can order a simple cardiac MRI, rule out myocarditis. That can be done anywhere. Um, and most medical centers now have MR for all the cancer reasons. So even though they tell you they're not that good at cardiac, they can do a myocarditis scan. We also will do perfusion reserve testing. It's like a pharmacologic stress. Um, this is actually very prevalent in the UK. They have almost exclusively shifted over to the use of cardiac MRI um, because they, they're in a socialized healthcare system. They don't ratchet up the costs and um, it has no ionizing radiation. And it is more sensitive than a SPECT, than the radionuclide. Um, So I would order that to see if this was a myocarditis. And then I typically will order a CTA. If they have squeaky clean coronaries, absolutely no plaque, it probably was a SCAD. And you will manage that just conservatively on aspirin, um, especially if they're normotensive and nothing else is going on. Um, if they are not squeaky clean, they've got plaque. And again, remember, CT angio will see non-calcified plaque, which is more prevalent in younger women. 
um, they need the full enchilada. And she she had the CT, the coronary CTA done in the hospital. Correct. Though. You would have to get it and look at it because we were told it was normal. Ah, I see. I see, okay. I see your point. You're Interesting. <laughs> I was like, wait, no, no, she already got it. <laughs> okay. And it was read or yeah. it was interpreted and yeah. dictated by the ED physician and probably a hospitalist, right? Did anybody actually look at it? Like, right. does she have plaque or look at the report? The radiologists are pretty good at these now, actually, and they will say there's calcified plaque, there's non-calcified plaque, and they'll give you a, a volumetric uh, assessment of it. So um, part of this also is that the imaging just gets better and better and better. Um, so it pays to not just take the wet read you know, get, get, look at the, the study uh, result. And if it's, if it just says normal, then actually get the disc and, and go over it. That reminds me of another, I think, important point. Um, a question I had is with the imaging modalities we have and with the treatments we have, how do they compare in men versus women in detecting ischemic heart disease or helping treat ischemic heart disease? So our non-invasive imaging right now is pretty male-focused. Um, the two workhorse strategies that we have, well, three, uh, invasive coronary angiography, which we know is aluminogram, right? All you, all you see is the dye. So you don't see the wall of the artery. CT angio is much better, and you can see it's coming on, and I think it will be a boon for women, number one. Number two, um, echo. Uh, resting echo, stress echo. Well, what is that looking for in ischemic heart disease? A wall motion abnormality. Microvascular dysfunction, more prevalent in women, is homogeneous throughout the microvascular tree. Uh, all of these arteries drink the same Kool-Aid. So they're all sick. And so you don't see segmental wall motion abnormalities, which are very dependent on one wall being adequately served and one wall having a stenosis. So again, male pattern and doesn't work that well for women. If it's positive, which it will be in a third of microvascular patients, fine, but you'll miss two thirds mm. if you just rely on the imaging. Spect ditto, it is dependent on pixel densities of this one being normal or, or high and this one being low. If everything is down, you won't see it. Um, just like we can miss triple vessel disease with a spect, you'll miss microvascular. Mm. Interesting. It's why we are increasingly um, suggesting that cardiac MRI as well as PET. Um, yeah. And the only downside to those two are, number one, you have to get it authorized. Although typically, if you've already done a routine inexpensive stress test and you have persistent signs and symptoms, we've had good success in getting it authorized. And then um, number two, it is pharmacologic. Neither, of, neither PET nor MRI can exercise with a few exceptions. So you're giving up that functional capacity. But for the increased sensitivity for myocardial blood flow and microvascular perfusion abnormalities, we think it's a reasonable bargain. Right. So so if someone's still having stable anginal symptoms, persistent, then maybe reaching for the PET or MRI to really look for those microvascular um, to confirm the diagnosis, to um, ally or relieve uh, anxiety. Uh, you know, anxious patients sometimes have a genuine problem that is driving their anxiety. Mm -hmm. 
so, and, um, and then it also helps to know how aggressively you're going to be with your antianginals. People that have something that you think is angina, and then you can document a genuine flow disturbance, antianginals work. Mm-hmm. Um, people that have an anxiety disorder or a cardiac nociceptive pain disorder, or it's misdiagnosed GERD, you can give them antianginals till you're blue in the face. They're not going to get better and they're going to be frustrated and you're going to be frustrated. It's why we still anchor on diagnostics, right? right. That's what we go to medical school for. <laughs> Learn how to diagnose. <laughs> Absolutely. And then in terms of the treatment, how in you know, the, the, the four pills, you know, aspirin, the ACE, the ARB, the beta blockers, the statins, um, I like your ABCs. Yes. Um, how, do, how does that fare from men and women? Are we seeing the same benefit in both, um, populations of women despite different, uh, diseases or different patterns of heart disease? So we have good data in large, uh, registry studies that clearly demonstrate that in the ACS and STEMI and STEMI settings that these ABC drugs work equally well, um, uh, equal um, risk reduction in women and men. These are large randomized controlled trials, uh, often of ACS and STEMI, STEMI, uh, pre-CATH before uh, we were requiring angiographic core labs. Uh, and so the presumption is that if a third of ACS in women are non-obstructive coronary disease, uh, you know, upwards of 15, 10 to 15% of NSTEMIs, uh, 5 to 10% of STEMIs, then it probably works. Uh, and in terms of tests of heterogeneity when it's underpowered for women, again, it suggests that these magic pills work equally well in these high-risk patients. We are in the midst right now of enrolling for a randomized controlled trial called WARRIOR, uh, which is um, testing high-intensity statin and maximally tolerated ACE or ARB in stable ischemic heart disease patients uh, with persistent chest pain and non-obstructive coronary disease. Why did we pick those drugs? Um, two uh, registry studies uh, clearly implicated them as being associated with benefit after demonstration of non-obstructive coronary disease. And number two, pharmacologic probe trials in relatively small uh, groups, uh, 75 to 150, randomized to an ACE-ARB, randomized to a statin, no statin, improved endothelial function and coronary flow reserve. Um, so we'll see, uh, let's do this talk, uh, three to four years from now, we'll have some results to talk about in that specific population. I think we're definitely going to have you back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, any, any, uh, burning questions, Paul, Molly, what are some things that you think, um, we've covered a lot of ground, but mm-hmm. any, anything else? Molly, didn't you have specific questions about the HEFPEF? Or- yeah. Um, yeah, we, we see s- so much of that in older women, and Absolutely. it's a little discouraging because we don't have treatments for it that exactly. are proven. Um, so in your talk, you were mentioning a little bit about starting or continuing some research that you're doing around that. So we'd love to hear a little more about that. Yeah. So HEFPEF, of course, is heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and also um, a female pattern, female dominant disease. 
Uh, if microvascular in uh, in our assessment is probably 80% women, 20% men, HFPEF is more like 60% women, 40% men, so a, a little more overlap. We're struggling with the definition. Uh, diastolic dysfunction neither defines nor is necessary for HFPEF, so uh, we continue to sort of work on nomenclature, diagnostic codes. What is really HFPEF? There's a lot of old folks out there that are obese and short of breath. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, any of my practice. That's no, none, I yeah, I, I haven't seen one of those in years. Uh, so, <laughs> so um, the jury is out, uh, but. For patients using um, a, a standardized definition, we uh, were just awarded a new study to test hypotheses about mechanistic pathways using cardiac MRI. One of the wonderful things about MRI is that it helps you characterize tissue. Uh, so where people used to do animal studies and then sacrifice the animal and look under the microscope and say, oh, look, there's fibrosis, or oh, look, there's triglyceride infiltration, or oh, look, there's cell death and apoptosis, you can do a lot of this now with the magnet. Um, so we're going to be testing ischemic pathways. Uh, we see in our WISE patients, 10% um, enter our study, non-obstructive coronary disease, either MINOCA or INOCA. 10% already have a small late GAD scar, sometimes spotty scars, typically subendocardial. So it's ischemic. It's not myocarditis. Uh, and then there's about a 25 to 3.5% annual new late GAD scar in these populations. So one of the hypotheses that we'll be testing as we sequentially follow these people forward is, is this just cumulative ischemic scar? And, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts. I mean, this is classic women stuff, right? Nothing really big, but just eventually. It's, okay. <laughs> it's so, fine. Yeah. I'm just having that chest pain again. It's okay. <clears throat> Story um, on the <laughs> And then other pathways are oxidative stress. We know that women have a heightened immune system compared to men. Uh, this accounts for the disproportionate prevalence of autoimmune disorders. Um, but this also could result in higher levels of immune-mediated oxidative stress, cell death, and replacement of myocardium with fibrosis. Um, and leading to a stiff heart. Uh, we'll be looking at that. And then finally, we're going to be looking at triglyceride infiltration. One of the things that has been clearly shown in animals and then a, a few human studies of genetic disorders is uh, the myocardium, which typically relies on free fatty acid. And why is that? Because your heart has to beat all the time. So you can't be hypoglycemic and be alive. But what happens when the myocardium becomes ischemic is it shifts to a fetal uh, gl uh, glucose utilization. Um, and uh, what happens with utilizing glucose is it starts to get rid of, it has trouble getting rid of the garbage. And the, the myocardial cells starts to fill up with triglyceride fat uh, and then become dysfunctional as well as becoming stiff. Um, so why are we doing this study? Because if we can identify pathways, and there's probably not going to be a single pathway, but if we can identify and link phenotypes with these pathways, then we can do better clinical trials. Right now it's a gamish, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the, as you point out, all of these treatments have failed. Um, 
we probably don't really know the underlying pathophysiology well enough to be doing more trials. There is a uh, um, an entresto, sorry to use a trade name, but the sabutracol is hard yeah, to say. it's okay. Um, You're forgiven. <laughs> uh, that trial is hopefully going to be out this next fall, and we'll see. It's going to either be another failure or... If it works, it might tell us something about a new pathway. So that work is unfolding. And again, it's, um, it falls under our, um, you know, umbrella of female pattern problems, which, uh, helps, uh, you know, helps further our curiosity. <laughs> Absolutely. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see as, you know, you sort of, unfortunately, we can't show it on the podcast, but you showed us a very nice graph of sort of more recently the, mortality lines coming together, it'll be interesting to see over time if we are doing better at treating ischemic heart disease in women, if one of the primary pathways towards FPEF is ischemia, hopefully that may yeah. decrease as well. Then that would decrease, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Another pathway that we won't test, but we'll be looking a bit uh, in the metabolic uh, issue uh, is you're familiar with uh, two years ago, there was a nice randomized controlled trial um, for patients with paroxysmal AFib. Um, and they, uh, you know, they were randomized to weight loss strategies versus not. And they actually lost some weight, um, you know, six to eight kilos, uh, kept it off, and they had much less recurrence of AFib. And at the end of HEFPEF, that often is a common um you know, pathway or a common outcome is persistent atrial fibrillation, which then just makes these stiff hearts, you know, work even worse. So, uh, you know, another idea about all of this, and this is something that I do, I think is, is, uh, appropriate counseling given we don't know anything else about it. For our obese patients, um, you know, I send them to cardiac rehab, uh, and we set goals, uh, for, for trying to do a better job with weight management at a minimum, not gain any more weight and at a maximum to try to lose those six to eight kilos. And, um, we'll see, you know? Oh. Yeah. Um, I, um, I just, I can't wait to learn more about heart disease in women. And, um, thank you so much for your time and helping kind of set us up with where we've come and what we've learned. And I'm sure there's still probably more questions that I, we'll be thinking about, but I mean, maybe it'd be good for, for the audience to have some takeaways for ischemic heart disease in women. Actually, maybe you can start off with why we should call it ischemic heart disease. Mm -hmm. I think that would be important. And then what, what do you want um, listeners to take away? Good. So we have relabeled it in guidelines and um, you'll see this, you know, in your reading, uh, we don't call it CAD or CHD anymore, not because those couldn't be used, and they, they certainly describe um, a phenomenon, but we now call it quite universally ischemic heart disease, uh, either stable ischemic heart disease, SIHD, um, or ACS and STEMI, uh, STEMI which would be the un unstable uh, components. Why do we do that? Because CAD and CHD in your cardiologist and perhaps your own brains uh, triggers that oculogyric reflex that you're looking for plugged up arteries. Yeah. Uh, and it's just very clear that while that is 
most commonly true in men, male pattern. Uh, it turns out to deserve uh, probably up to a third of women. Uh, so look for that nomenclature. Try to use it yourself. Um, uh, we use an ICD-10 code, code of chronic ischemic heart disease. That's almost always my leading ICD-10 code, and um, it will help for all of the kinds of research that we're doing with our electronic health records now to be mm -hmm. accurate. Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess my take-homes would be uh, three bullets. Uh, number one would be awareness. Um, be aware that cardiovascular disease is the leading killer of women and that if it... <laughs> If they've had a heart attack, you're going to have to own up to it. You're going to have to code it, and you need to diagnose why they had a heart attack. And um, if you're lucky and they have plugged up arteries, you're off to the racetracks. Everybody knows what's to do. Uh, and if you're not lucky, uh, then you will need to, you know, use that good cognitive skill set that you have upstairs. Um, number two is for uh, stable, but uh, you know, symptom patients, men or women, over the age of 40 for men, over the age of 50 for women, guidelines are they should be tested, that you can do traditional um, inexpensive exercise stress ECG uh, if they're able to exercise uh, and they have a normal ECG. Uh, if they uh, need imaging uh, because of those not fulfilling those other two criteria, you are able to do stress imaging or you can do a CT angio. Um, and that the recent Scott Hart trial published, uh, the follow-up published in the New England Journal about six months ago, demonstrated clearly that the CTA uh, arm had an advantage uh, in terms of reduced mortality, likely because they were treated for the a visible atherosclerotic plaque that you see on the CT angio. Number three, um, follow guidelines. There are guidelines for stable ischemic heart disease and angina, and they don't say do an angiogram first. They say treat, treat angina, deploy anti-anginals, not only for quality of life, um, but for, um, you know, all of the reasons that uh, we'd like to try to keep people out of emergency rooms. It's a, it's, a, it's a cost issue when we don't treat people. And then follow your ACS and STEMI and STEMI guidelines. Follow guidelines. They will overcome our implicit bias that uh, disadvantage women. Brilliant. I... <laughs> That's a good place to leave it. <laughs> this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get show notes. Uh, I, no. I didn't like it any better. I <laughs> Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do so, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Shreya Chiretti, and to our social media team, Hannah. And yourself, Dr. <laughs> Miley. Special thanks Molly. to Dr. Molly Hoyvine. <laughs> Say your last name again. Hoyvine. Hoyvine. You got it right. Paul's got it. Uh, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chimanchu on Facebook. And yeah. who's live recording this or maybe uh, just recording and putting it on YouTube later. Audio visual hero. <laughs> yes. And I've been Dr. Molly Hoyvine. I'm Dr. Sheree Trevetti. 
And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.